to have a stimulating conversation in France, there's just a few things you should know. You can say anything to the French. You don't have to beat around the bush or worry about polite things. It's a sport. It's a game. Coming up, the authors of The Bonjour Effect are back to point out how people communicate across cultures in France. They will hear a word that they don't know, and they'll sort of pick it up like a little butterfly, and they sort of collect words like that. And if you're ever in Paris on their big national holiday, Bastille Day, be sure to include a stop at the local fire station in your plans. In every district that night, the fireman house is open, and there's a ball, so you can dance all night long with the fireman, and there are little lights everywhere in the fireman place. A guide to nightlife in Paris, and understanding the art of conversation the way they do it in France. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Bonjour, I'm Rick Steves. Jean-Benoit Nadeau and Julie Barlow taught us those magic words to start a conversation off on the right foot when you're in France. In just a minute, they tell us how the French have responded to their book, The Bonjour Effect, now that it's been translated and released in France. Later in the hour, we'll celebrate Bastille Day with tips on enjoying the nightlife of Paris from a couple of young guides who know how to have fun in this city of light. By the way, one of them's my son, Andy. It doesn't matter so much how perfect your French pronunciation is. When you're in France, there are a few cultural insights you need to be mindful of to really communicate one-on-one with the locals. The husband and wife team of Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nedo shared what they discovered about how to speak French in their 2016 book called The Bonjour Effect. They're back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves after a book tour in France where the book has been translated into French for the French to learn about their own language, apparently. They join us now from the CBC studios in their home city of Montreal. Bonjour. 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 This is so fascinating that you write a book as Canadian French speakers, so you're fluent in French, but you're not actually French. How did that help you with your teaching mission of the book? You must have had a little more empathy with the rest of us tourists going to France who who may have learned some French language in school, but we might be clueless about the fine points. Well, the funny thing is that, that even though we speak French, and, and I'm, I'm just to be clear, I'm not a native French speaker. I learned French in school as well. But even though we're fluent French speakers and very familiar with French culture, we still have these terrible misunderstandings with the French. And the origin of the book was to sort of get to the root of why we go expecting perfect communication and we want to indulge in, you know, the art of French conversation. And we get there and it just doesn't work. So for a French-speaking Canadian, you could fly to France thinking, yeah, I speak the language and realize, oh, but I don't speak the culture. Exactly. And even for me, because my, my mother tongue is French. But my culture is not French from France. So what's, what's an example of a, a surprise when you finally do get to France and you realize, oh, I guess I'm not quite as fluent as I hope well, to be? The French say uh, no all the time for anything. It's their default answer. In North America, and that's true for French Canadians, we tend to take a no for a no. Right. For the French, they say no sometimes just because they, they're afraid of making a mistake, so they prefer saying no. Because for the French, contrary to North Americans, being liked is not that important to them. It's not being at fault that matters. So oh. saying no is the, the right thing to say. In the case of the French, it's uh, often for fear of, of ridicule. Mm-hmm. For example, not knowing. Not knowing in France is ridiculous. Uh, you're supposed to know. So if they don't know, their default answer is no. 
because it's their anti-ridicule shield that they put in front of them. But the important thing for, you know, travelers to understand is that no is, for the French, doesn't normally mean, you know, the conversation is over. I mean, they say it all the time. So it's the beginning of a discussion it's about It's just this. the beginning of a discussion. And, and so it's up to you to sort of pull up your pants and keep trucking and keep, okay. keep talking to them until you get whatever you want. So can I check out of the room at 1 o'clock instead of noon? No. Well, then you talk about it a little bit, huh? Then you exactly. talk, and, and eventually, you know, if they're going to change their mind, they'll change their <laughs> mind. It's just... They had a chance to, to sort of creep into the reality that they might bend the rules for you. you exactly. You yeah. explain your situation. It works that way in some hotels, and it's yeah. okay. And then, yeah. and then and sometimes they react, sometimes it's no, it's no yeah. because it's not possible, and you get that answer in the United States as well. But you they're, should expect it to start with no. I get the sense that the French just like to discuss and even debate things. I mean, consensus is kind of boring. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's spice it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the a conversation with them, you know, it's a story that Julie likes to, to tell that we were at a supper, and we were very North American. We were very polite. So mm-hmm. we were giving our point of view as Quebecers and, you know, being polite and being nice. At one point, Julie realizes that, you know... We're boring. We're boring. Yeah. So she, she produces an enormity. The discussion was about Art Deco, and she says, oh, I think Art Deco is fascist. It's just like that. Then they Bingo. look at us and they say, oh, yes, And they that's love great. it. And, then, <laughs> and, then the, and, you know, it just takes off like a bonfire and the conversation gets rolling. But if you, you know, behave yourself and you're too yes. polite and to agreeing too much, looking for consensus and sharing things and stuff, they find that dull. And the traveler is inclined to be polite and, and kind of mm. boring just because they, they don't want to make a faux pas and they just they want to be agreeable. But in, in France, they, the way their the education is at school and in the families, that they value a lot what they call uh, culture générale, general knowledge, history, art. Mm-hmm. And, and so North Americans, these kinds of things, they tend to view it a little bit elite. Elitist, Someone yeah. who would display too much general culture, would you would regard that person as elitist. And people who have a lot of general culture tend to hide it. So that's not a socioeconomic thing. People of any class could be well-versed in politics and uh, Mm -hmm. history and literature and so on. So they do welcome that. And for North Americans who have a lot of uh, culture along those lines, it's actually quite relaxing to be in Paris because you could just start talking about that. And people will be immediately interested. But the French come off as showing off a little bit because they like to display their knowledge, but it's really part of how they're raised. Our kids were in school the year we were researching this book, and we saw how the education system really promotes it. Our daughters were asked to one day do a presentation on a, they're 10 years old, a French classic painter, you know, Mm. (laughs) so they had to go. And, you know, we got back to North America, and the project was, you know, pick your favorite body part and talk about it. I mean, it's just radically different, but they're trained this way, and it's highly valued. It just can sort of set off foreigners who are expecting something more humble. But I always think it's kind of like show and tell on Monday morning when you're in fourth grade. You're not better than somebody else. You just want to show them what you learned the other day or what you did or what you've got. Mm -hmm. And I think in France that, that stimulates the conversation. It's a delightful part about France. It's something to talk about, and they like talking about stuff. So, you know, opinions and facts. They like lots of content in their conversation. Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves are Jean-Benoit Nedon and Julie Barlow. They're a husband and wife team of Canadian writers based in Montreal. And after a decade of living in France, they wrote up what they had discovered about the unwritten rules beyond vocabulary about speaking French in France rather than in Canada. Their book is The Bonjour Effect, and it helps us understand the subtext and what's expected when speaking in France. We have a link to their website with this week's show, and it's at ricksteves.com slash radio. 
Now, Julie and Jean-Benoit, you, I understand, translated your book, The Bonjour Effect, into French, and you just got back from a tour of France. What was it like as Canadian teachers and writers and French speakers going to France with a book that was supposed to explain how their language is different than in other cultures? I was afraid a little bit that they would be a bit defensive, you know? Uh, yeah. But they were very warm to it, uh, to us. In fact, we did a lot of very long interviews, like 45, 50 minutes on radio, TV, newspapers. Uh, and their reaction is one of curiosity. They are not necessarily conscious of what they project. And since our book is very honest in the sense that we take our perspective very clearly, our perspective as North Americans, they find it interesting because it gives them a perspective on North America. They could learn about themselves, too, I suppose. As well, indeed. Were they humble about that? Did they go, oh, that's... uh..." They were surprised. We were in a journalism class one day, and there was a student who got up in front of the class and said, you know, I I didn't really believe you about these things, particularly about bonjour, you know, this word that you have to say all the time. We have a whole chapter about how, how necessary it is to say bonjour. And he said, so I, I, I went and tested it, and I went into my, my bookstore in my neighborhood, and I didn't say bonjour and saw what would happen. And he said, <laughs> indeed, no one talks to you if you don't start the conversation with bonjour. And he said, you know, I felt so uncomfortable. And he said, you know, you're right. We, we have this word that we have to use to sort of unblock every kind of communication. And they might not have realized that had they not had the no. exposure from somebody from far away. It's related to my <laughs> theory that you learn about your own culture when you leave it because you mm. can look at it from afar and you can gain a perspective that other people have on us. And you might not even realize that when you're immersed in the middle of it. You mentioned mm-hmm. in your book how the French, uh, they don't talk about money, uh, but sexual innuendo is no problem at all. Yeah, they are not afraid of making a, a comment to that effect. One of the reasons why the North Americans think that they are very uh, libertine is the fact that the place of women in that society has always been peculiar. French women have had civil rights a bit later than, than American women. But in fact, French women in society, in conversation, have had a stupendous place for centuries. So it's very interesting. French women worked a lot earlier in numbers. So in France, the relationship between men and women was not something confined to the home. It was something that that was lived publicly for a long time. Well, it's funny because at once you have a culture that, you know, to many North American women seems kind of sexist. Partly because the jokes about sex are, are they make them easily in public, and you know it can be a little off-putting for for a North American woman. At the same time, they have a society that's very, very well organized for women, for parents. But let's be honest, for women, with you know school that starts very early, guaranteed daycare, and a whole bunch of services in place that make it easy to work and have kids at the same time. And a larger proportion of women work outside of the home in France. And there's also the long history of French women being more part of the conversation in the culture. They participate as equals. And of course, in the conversation, the French aren't looking for consensus. So you don't have couples that are sort of together projecting one point of view. You have couples who are, you know, arguing in front of everybody. And so, you know, women have to sort of step up to the bat, I guess. It's it's interesting because socially, the place of women is has been high for a long time. And French women, by law, retain their birth name on their état civil, on their hmm. uh, official registry. But when uh, we went to get our um, resident card, Julie was surprised to see her name, Julie Barlow, wife Nadeau, épouse Nadeau. 
Ah. And uh, it's and very I interesting see. because a couple of years back, they, they made laws to forbid terms like mademoiselle and, and you know, because right. it was sexist. But on, on the resident card, they have to have, they, they feel obliged to write Barlow, wife, Nadeau. <laughs> and I argued with him. I said, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't even have his name. And they, they said, oh, well, that's the way things are done. You know, oh, so it's still okay. kind of sexist. Yeah. 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 yeah it's still this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the French culture and the French language with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau. A few of our listeners have sent us a snapshot of their experiences in France in the form of a travel haiku. Erica Brennan of St. Petersburg, Florida, sends us this daydream haiku about an upcoming trip to Paris with her husband. Wine, cheese, and baguette. Picnicking with my true love. Paris lights... Twinkle. Judy and John Collins from Coronado, California, write about a budget-friendly Paris holiday. With bikes in a tent, we camped in Bois du Boulogne. Paris felt like home. And Owen Mardikin in Fairfax, California, was treated to a real European experience on his vacation. Stick shift rental cars. How to put it in reverse. Shamed by a Peugeot. You can send us your original haiku at ricksteves.com slash radio. What stories do you have to share about trying to communicate in France? We're at 877-333-RIC. There's more just ahead with the authors of The Bonjour Effect, The Story of French, and 60 Million Frenchmen Can't Be Wrong on Travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about French language and how it connects with French culture. We're talking with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau. Their books are The Bonjour Effect and The Story of French. Julie and Jean-Benoit, it's interesting when you study languages, as you have, that different languages have different fortes and different traits, and they're able to give you an insight into the way that group of people think. What can we derive from the French language that gives us an insight into the French mind? It's interesting. Because of their education, the French in France have this attitude. They're very purists, so they, they, they're trained to have this idea that there's a, a standard of French and there's a, a very strong norm. And they, they admire dictionaries. They, in conversation, they will hear a word that they don't know and they'll sort of pick it up like a little butterfly, and they'll put a pin on it in, into their book. And they, they sort of collect words like that. It's very odd. They, they will stop our conversation to ask you about this word and what it means. And it's useful as a stranger, because if you want to change a topic of conversation, you just drop something you know they don't know, and immediately they'll go after that term. But, but at the same time, they are very creative with their language, even subversive. It's interesting, because... It's a kind of reaction to their idea of a very strong norm in the school. You know, they they will tend to jargon and use a lot of slang. Right it, now, they're it, actually using a lot of English. Which yeah, is right now. Yeah, yeah. They, they use English right now to as a way of doing neology to, to, to add spice. But yeah. they, for example, uh, in normal conversation, they will never say "j'ai froid," "I'm cold." They will say "sakai." series of terms like this that, that are not uh, school French at all. Okay. It's sort of a declaration of global independence or something, or to break away from the, the norms? Yes, exactly. The, the rigidity of the language. I remember yeah. a generation ago, businesses were actually given financial penalties if they used English words in their name or in, in their advertising. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, English is really 
quite popular. And, but the French import it and use it in a way to, to demonstrate their worldliness or their openness or their sophistication. It's interesting. Yeah. But they don't use it necessarily for what it means in English, which is really amusing. For example, the, we, one evening we were interviewed at uh, TV Cinq Monde and they, they were talking about a program that involved Quebec and France and it was a French program and they called it Startup. Star, S-T-A-R-T-O-P. Top. Star, it actually, top. Yeah, they translated it, it into two different words that had nothing to do with what they were talking about. <laughs> in fact, it's not even English. You actually have to translate what it means in English. So it sounded English, but that was good enough if it just sounded English. It's false English. It's fake English. You know, something very interesting in your book, The Story of French, was just digging into the history of this language, which is such an important language. I mean, it may not be spoken by the most people. I think it's number nine in the number of speakers. But according to your information... It remains one of the top two or three most influential languages. How could that be? I mean, because, you know, a lot more people speak Mandarin or English or Spanish. The contrast with Spanish is kind of interesting because there's twice as many Spanish speakers in the world. But it's spoken, Spanish is mainly spoken in the countries where it's spoken as a, as a mother tongue in the Spanish-speaking countries. French is spoken by many fewer, you know, half as many total French speakers, but they're spread over the entire world. And French is taught all over the world as well. It's still, you know, ranked second or third as an international language. I believe my passport has English and French in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand the czar in Russia 120 years ago spoke better French than he spoke Russian, and he was proud of it. I mean, it it really was the respected high culture language, the, the common mm -hmm. denominator among educated people and business people, I think. But most of the rankings that we've studied, uh, one from the MIT, I mean, all of them come up with the same conclusion that amongst international languages, French is second, third, fourth, depending on how mm -hmm. you calculate it. And it's because number of speakers is only one factor. In terms of coverage, for example, there's 29 to 32 countries that have French as an official language. Uh, that's a lot more than Spanish or Arabic or Portuguese or Russian. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nedo about the story of French and about their book, The Bonjour Effect. Let's go back to the history. I mean, French is, you wrote, it was the most Germanic of the Latin languages. What is Germanic about French? About 10% of, of the vocabulary in French is of Frankish origin. And Frankish would be a Germanic tribe? Yes, exactly. Terms like guerre, the terms for shame, honte, uh, all these terms are, are of Germanic origin, not Latin at all. And also the, the way French constituted itself from Romance. Between Latin and French, there was an intermediate language called Romance that existed, and that language had a strong influence of uh, Germanic in the way that people uh, used the position of words in the sentence and all that. So if you delve deep into French, you'd find more Germanic connections than you would in Italian or Spanish. Absolutely. In your book, you have three thresholds of the development of the language. Uh, the fall of Rome, the conquest of England by the Normans, and the rise of Paris as a center of power. Very briefly, mm -hmm. can you walk us through why was that a big deal for the French language? The fall of Rome, the conquest of England, and the rise of Paris. The fall of Rome, uh, I think, was a big deal for uh, all Romance languages in, in the Western uh, Europe. It was a very slow collapse, in fact. What it did was um, explode Latin into a number of vernaculars. Uh, okay. 
some of which are still uh, practiced nowadays. There's still about 24 regional languages in France, like Occitan. Provençal is a variation of Occitan. Oh, okay. So when Rome was together, when Rome was the center of civilization, it was all centralized, and Latin was strictly the official language. But when that falls, all of these pent-up local dialects can have a little more freedom to rise to the top? Exactly. So French exploded that way. Uh, how about the invasion of England by the Normans from western France in 1066? Yes. What did that have to yes. do with the French language? Well, what it did is, is the most visible example of how, not quite French, it's more proper to speak of romance, mm -hmm. exported itself outside of its natural original domain, uh, oh, which okay. was Normandy, Champagne, Orléans, and north of Picardy. French exported itself a long time ago as a global language. And it, it implanted itself in English. You know, the ruling classes of English for centuries will be speaking French, so yeah. you know, you'll see that in the vocabulary of English now. Because that was a turning point in Britain to have a strong central government, which happened because of the, the strength of the Normans who came in with their culture mm -hmm. and language in mm -hmm. the 11th century. And then later on we see Paris rising as the center of power, and that really sort of centralizes France around Paris. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened in, in the middle of that process is that French didn't ex what was called François, which is the mm -hmm. language of the Frank, mm -hmm. it literally means that, uh, Frankish, uh, if you want to translate it in English. And in fact, it didn't exist. It was a kind of uh, scripta, a common language between areas that spoke Norman, Orleanese, Champenois, and Picard. Uh. And they sort of created a sort of middle language where they avoided the stuff that the others could not understand. This became the sort of middle language. Like a lingua franca. Like a lingua franca. I actually experimented the process because I went to Jersey Island, mm -hmm. where they still speak Norman. Hmm. And I spent uh, four days with people who spoke Norman, and I, this is exactly what we did. I spoke mm -hmm. with my hmm. Canadian version of French, and they spoke with their Norman Romance language. And we sort of avoided very rapidly everything that the others could not understand. You wrote in your book how after the revolution in the 1790s, of 28 million French people, less than half of them spoke French well. There was like 30 mm -hmm. dialects. But then with the impetus of the revolutionary government centralizing things, that was just the time when French became established as the powerful language of this powerful country. Yes, and it's it's interesting, I mean, to go back to your earlier question about what language says about the French themselves, it's it's fundamental to understand that, you know, France up until World War One, even to a certain extent up until World War Two, is a very linguistically diverse country with a missionary education system trying to, hmm. you know, get rid of all the local languages, ah. dozens and dozens of them, and create this central. So language becomes, for the French really part of their national identity. And the whole doctrine of assimilation that the French have very strongly, which is a very big contrast to the United States and to Canada as well, this doctrine of assimilation is also about language and about this history of, you know, from the revolutionary government on. In fact, before that, hmm. centuries before that, there are attempts to, you know, impose French. And, you know, the French people really believe their, their language is alive and creating a society. The authors of The Bonjour Effect are updating us on how to converse in France today on Travel with Rick Steves. Julie and Jean Benoit's website is nadeaubarlot.com and Nado is spelled N-A-D-E-A-U. Alinda from Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania joins us on the phone now at 877-333-7425. Bonjour, Alinda. Bonjour. I was going to talk about an experience I had when I traveled to Paris, if that's okay. Sure. 
before I went, I had spoken to the concierge at the hotel asking for help in getting tickets for the opera and the ballet and, and a few other things. And I would start off trying to speak French every time he would answer the phone. And then he'd say, no, you can speak English. But as soon as I arrived at the hotel and I started to speak English to him, because I recognized it was the same person I spoke with, he says, oh, no, you're in France. You have to speak French. So I said, well, what if I don't know the word? He says, well, you can say, comment dit-on, and the English word. But other than that, you must speak French. So it was actually really quite fun. My accent was never very good when I studied French in college, but it obviously improved when you were speaking nothing but French. And mm -hmm. I got to the point where we had breakfast at the hotel, so I would speak to the servers in French. And at the table next to me were some people who were conversing with each other in English, and they asked me a question in very halting French uh. about something. So knowing that they were speaking English, I responded to them in English rather than in French, and their comment was, oh, your English is so good. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, thank you. You know, I didn't want to embarrass them by saying <laughs> I'm an English speaker. Good so, for you, Melinda. Um, That's a good example of uh, really connecting with the culture. What, what was the word that the, the man told you, comment dit-on? Comment dit-on, how does it said? Am I pronouncing? Uh, I may be pronouncing yeah, it wrong. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. You, you say it absolutely right. Well, those are good tips, Helena. Thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Good to talk to you, and it was very interesting listening to your show. Thank Thanks. you. Take Thank care. Bye-bye. William's calling in from Miami in Florida. Hi, William. Hi. Yeah, I like to go to France every other you know year or so, and uh, I've been studying French for a few years. I'm in no way fluent, but uh, I, the French seem to find me impossible to understand. You know, when I try to speak to my in Lyon last year, I stopped the guy on the street and asked him, you know, the direction to the museum. And then he said, you know, excuse me, so I repeated it. Then he said in English, it kind of exasperated. He said, "What are you trying to say to me?" <laughs> I said, "I'm asking where the art museum is." He said, "Well, it's right. It's right down the street." I said, "Is my French that bad?" He goes, "No, no, it's fine." Then he ran off. Oh, man. What is with that? Yeah, <laughs> Julian Saint-Benoît, because uh, I've found the same thing. I, I do my best in my horrible French, and of course the French speak better English. So they just said, stop screwing around. Let's talk in English. I was wondering if, if they appreciate uh, your attempt to try to speak French, or they, would they prefer we just stick to English? No, I think they do appreciate a lot. They uh, they do, but they they have this culture of of correcting each other, right? Like it's a cultural they, thing, yeah. And I, we shouldn't yeah, take person really we shouldn't it. take it no. personally. No, no, never take it personally. I mean, it's just oh, I the did. They, they've always been nice. <laughs> yeah, but I I think they, William's they, question is good. Are they sort of um, put off by our butchering their language? But if we're well meaning, they respect it. Yes, exactly, and they're they're glad and. Their idea is to show you a courtesy by answering in English. If you insist on uh, keeping speaking French, they will respect that. But that said, they ha do have a culture of very good enunciation. and oh, they, yeah. they, they have a, an expression that is a bit odd and even awful. It's, it's, when someone speaks very good French, they will say un, un français bien châtié. Well chastised French, Whoa. which means yeah. So they have this this idea that that you have to honor French by 
speaking it as best but as, you, as the possible. The funny thing is, they don't. That's not just for foreigners. That's for the French themselves. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they they correct each other all the time. They correct us with our accent. Well, I love that idea that they respect the language. And uh, your, mm-hmm. your comment earlier about a new word to be like a little butterfly. Let's grab it and pin it yes. to the wall and study it. And I do think that Americans have a an accent that must grate against the French ear. I don't know. They must find it almost cartoonish American compared to the Queen's English in Britain. I'm originally from Texas. That might be part of the problem. But a couple of years ago in Paris, I was trying to buy a ticket to Reims, and I ended up with a ticket to Rouen. Well, that's a very hard city to pronounce. I've got to spell that one. Yes. <laughs> yes. Rance. It rhymes with France. Then that's why I just had to take ticket back and said, look, we got to do this in English. I'm sorry. R-E-I-M-S. How do you pronounce that, Jean Benoit? Rinse. Yes, like a rinse. Rinse. All right. Hey, well, William, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye now. And Garen is calling from France. Hello. Yeah. Hi, Rick. You're actually calling from France? I am. I'm in Biarritz, France right now. All right. Well, how are you doing in, uh, this is Basque country in France, right? That's correct. Yeah, doing great. All right. What's your thoughts about the language and the discussion we're having? Well, you know, as an American, we always hear about how kind of some of the things you guys are talking about, you know, how the French can be kind of cold and a lot of people kind of debate, well, is that the Parisian thing or is it French? And, you know, if I try to speak, you know, one time I I pulled out the few words of French that I know and they immediately switched to English and they had this, you know, exasperated look on their face and I felt dumb for even trying. And uh, I've always had good experiences in Paris, but here in the Basque country and in Biarritz where I live, people are so over the top friendly I live with my girlfriend here, and all the time we find ourselves telling each other, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth that the French are inhospitable or cold or anything. We just have, every day, the most amazing just kind of examples of bumping into people and and hospitality and warmth, and people just are so excited when you are making an effort to speak in French, and it's just been a pleasure again to speak French here. But you're showing interest and respect to the local language and culture, and that probably wins people over. And if we can just not compare it to the United States and not try to tell the French how to do it, but just become temporary French people, I think life goes much better and we enjoy a lot warmer welcome. Exactly. Also, it's kind of like a funny paradox where the French are so proud of their language. Almost 10 years ago now, I went to school in Po, which is about an hour from here, Mm -hmm. and I studied in the language program. And it kind of was a dual-purpose language program where foreigners learned French, and then the local kids learned how to become French teachers. And it was really interesting kind of seeing from the inside that there really are a lot of people who are very passionate about the language. You know, it used to be true that French was spoken all over the world, and it's a little bit less so now. And they were just, they were kind of evangelists, you know, that they were passionate about going out there and kind of helping bolster the language again. And even if you butcher the language, and if you speak it terribly, almost in kind of like a self uh, you know, a grandizing way, they say, oh, well, the thing is, French is so hard. It's a really complicated <laughs> language. It's very difficult. It's almost impossible for foreigners to learn. <laughs> so they almost like extend that olive branch where, you know, they kind of get to pat themselves on the back, but then throw you a life raft at the same time. You know? uh, so then you just kind of agree with them and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really hard, but it's so beautiful. So it's worth the effort. And I'm really enjoying it. And then everybody kind of lights up and it works out in your favor. All right. Well, Garen, thanks so much and uh, happy travels and stay in touch. Thank you very much. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Barlow and jean Benoit Nadeau. Their books are The Bonjour Effect and The Story of French. Julie and jean Benoit, it's been so not only interesting but educational for me to be able to talk with you about both the language and the culture of France. Now, clearly you have a joy of speaking French. Can you just sum up our conversation sharing for you what's the joy of speaking French? For me, the joy, I mean, 
I was handicapped a little feeling at, when I began living in France by the feeling that my French wasn't perfect. And then I realized that, that the real pleasure of it is just jumping into conversations. You can say anything to the French, and they'll come back with something. You don't have to beat around the bush or worry about polite things. And I think that the real challenge to overcome in France is this love of confrontation, of clashing opinions. For me, that's the fun. I feel like a, you just, it's a sport. It's a game. There's the joy of speaking French and there's the joy of speaking the French way, which is not quite the same thing. All right. Julie and Jean Benoit, merci and au revoir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Au revoir. You can listen to Julie and Jean Benoit's earlier Travel with Rick Steves conversation on program number 466 from December 2016. Our show archives are at ricksteves.com slash radio. A Young Person's Guide to the Nightlife of Paris is just around the corner on Travel with Rick Steves. In so many ways, Paris is the cultural capital of Europe. With tips for enjoying a night out on the town, we're joined now by Andy Steves and Lola Altman. My son Andy leads weekend getaways for college students in the capitals of Europe, and Lola Altman lived in Paris for 10 years and studied philosophy and theater at the Sorbonne. They're here to bring us a youthful perspective on enjoying Paris after dark. Andy and Lola, welcome. It's great to be on the show, Dan. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Lola, Paris is called the City of Light. When you think about After Dark Paris, how is that connected? Well, you have to think that in Paris, you'd start to have dinner a bit later than in America. Mm -hmm. So you'll go after works um, having drinks, and then you'll have dinner maybe around 8 p.m., 9 p.m., and then the night starts, and the lights are everywhere in the whole city. In fact, a lot of people enjoy sitting on the steps of Montmartre and watching the lights come on. Absolutely. Did you ever do that as a student? Yes. What's um, that like? So you just um, sit on, in the grass next to the Sacre Coeur and uh, you have like a nice bottle of wine and a little bit of a picnic and you, you can see the whole city of Paris so we're, slowly we're on lighting this, the, up. It's the mountain, the, it's the big hill in Paris with the Neo-Byzantine church, the Sacre Coeur. Yes. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because a lot of tourists goes there and if you sit right on the steps, it feels kind of... Uh, trashy touristic, but you're sitting in the grassy area, the little parks on the side, French yes. students. And again, tell us, you're sitting there with your school friends and your bottle of wine, and what do you see? So you see the city slightly lighting up. So first the Eiffel Tower, and then you can see all, all the buildings, like people living in their flats. So you can see all the little lights and also all the nightlife going on. Well, it gives you like a, a whole view of the whole city and what's it's comes a grand to life. view. And, and Paris is famous for floodlighting the historic monuments. Mm -hmm. Yes. So like little jewels you can see. Oh, there's the Pantheon. There's the Eiffel Tower. There's the Arc de Triomphe. Andy, have you been there on Montmartre in the evening? One of the reasons I love Montmartre so much is that historically, it's right on the edge of old central Paris. And so that's right where the toll gate was. If you wanted to go inside, you got to pay tax on your food, your wine, things like that. But if you hang out just outside, that's where the real fun is, you know, the old city gates. And so that, I think, has been a, um, a historical parallel. That's why it also happens to be a, a nightlife hub even today. So we're talking 19th century or before centuries ago, mm -hmm. that this is where the nonconformists, where the bohemians, where the, the bohemians, artists, the artists, the, the uh, prostitutes, prostitutes, the street musicians. Soldiers would go there for, uh, you know, for their after work drinks and everything. And, and that culture still is, is there today. And I love to see how 
in cities today, whether we're talking about Paris, Rome, Barcelona, places are geographically located there for a reason. And when you're able to tap into that with a little bit of understanding, Mm -hmm. nightlife is not just something fun to do. I'd say it's a historical lesson. Lola, when you're on Montmartre, also you're very close to the very touristy Moulin Rouge. And that's where we have the can-can dance and the famous uh, Parisian culture from a century ago. What is that like today? Well, today it's more of a touristic thing to do, I'd uh-huh. say. But um, this whole neighborhood, Pigalle, is really interesting because at night you have every kind of people there. So you have the young people who want to go out, the tourists who are coming to discover Pigalle because it's a famous district. Yeah. Um, you have... All kind of people and all kind of ages and all kind of cultures. Now, Pigalle, the American uh, soldiers in World War II nicknamed it Pig Alley. Uh, I think Americans, it's famous for Americans because so many soldiers had an unforgettable experience there. And it's uh, sort of the grungy red light district, but it's also the cabaret, uh, you know, the can-can dancing. And uh, let's talk about different districts in Paris that would give you a different sense of after dark fun. Andy, what, what's a good district for you if you're trying to get away from the tourist and, and connect with uh, French culture? I think that's a great place to start as well because in Paris, where you are really changes your experience. Let's start with where not to go. Uh, you know, when it comes to visiting Paris, everybody has Champs Elysees and the Arc de Triomphe on the list. That is where you want to be in the day. After the sun goes down, it's time to get out into different neighborhoods. If you're on a budget and you want a picnic, like we mentioned, Montmartre is great, of course, overlooking the city, or Champ de Mar, right in front of the Eiffel Tower. You can get that bottle of wine, some cheese, and watch it sparkle up on the hour, uh, five Mm. minutes at the top of the hour each hour. Um, So the Champ de Mar is the former parade ground at the uh, military school, the Eco Militaire, and they mm -hmm. had that big, vast expanse of land, and they decided, let's build the Eiffel Tower on it. So today it's the big park around the Eiffel Tower, Mm -hmm. and it's one place in Paris where people are welcome to sit on the grass. Mm -hmm. And it's a great collection spot for young people with their picnics and everybody who wants to enjoy. You mentioned the Eiffel Tower twinkles on the hour. On the hour, exactly. You know, we can now enjoy that picnic in what was an old world's fairground. Again, relatively touristy, but all are welcome. Then there's uh, Le Marais, for example, the gay district of Paris, which has great shopping, lots of delicious food, and, of course, an interesting nightlife scene as well. My favorite is the Canal District. We mentioned that. It's a neighborhood that goes up and down in the northwest, uh, northeast part of town. And I love it because it's trendy cafes, cool bars, and it also brings out the people that are fun to be around. Is this Very in English St. Martin's Canal? St. Martin's Canal. So that would be a good place to go just to feel the local vibe. And that's mm-hmm. where I lived for eight years. Oh, so what's your tip about uh, the St. Martin? The good thing is to just sit on the quay. Meaning the, uh, the, the sort of side the, of the, the, the side of the canal. Of the canal yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And everybody sits there and you can bring a bit of music and have a picnic. And then you always are going to speak with anybody who is sitting next to you. So you always meet people. And it's all the locals, usually. I mean, there's also And if an adventurous traveler, maybe we say a traveler instead of a tourist, can come there yes. with a picnic and they can make some friends. Absolutely. It's a great place to meet the locals. Our guides to the nightlife of Paris are Lola Altman and Andy Steves. Andy's written the Andy Steves Europe Guidebook for youthful city hopping on a budget. And his website is andysteves.com. You know, I've noticed in France, when you look at historic pictures of, of Paris... It's just muddy, mucky riverbanks. And then, I believe it was in uh, the 19th century, in the 1800s, the riverbanks were made uh, more solid with uh, stones, concrete or whatever. And today we have these beautiful walkways along the rivers. And that's where people go at night. And 
it's an extravaganza of elegant picnic dinners. And these are not tourists. These are local people that bring a, a blanket. Can you describe that whole culture of dining in a picnic way on the Seine? Well, yeah, it's like um, sharing a moment. So you bring your food, but it's more about sharing a moment all together and enjoying, like, during the summer, the weather is so nice to stay outside. You can stay outside until 3 in the morning if you want to. Yeah. And there will always be some people on the side and everybody is, like, bringing a guitar or, you know, sharing music. You could spend $50 for the most expensive picnic you could imagine for two or three or four people <laughs> and eat better and have a better memory than going to a restaurant and spending four times that, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And along the canal, you also have nice um, bars and cafes if, you, if you're not comfortable sitting on the floor because it's not always really comfortable. More than ever. Because I remember the embankment along the canal was filled with cars or it was just a no-go zone for people. And now it's very people-friendly. One of my favorite memories is renting a bike and biking the entire length of the river past all of these bars and these sort of fabricated beaches. Andy, talk about the, what is it, the Perry Plage? The Perry Plage. That's something that you're seeing all across Europe now is a real investment and attention paid to renovating and really re-upping other districts that have been ignored in history. So just like you're talking about the canal district or the riverbanks, what used to be run down and not a place you'd want to go are now some of the most prime located places to go on a nice little promenade and enjoy a picnic. The Paris Plage, if you get to go to Paris in the summer, what happens is for those who can't get away from the city for vacation, the city actually carts in uh, truckfuls, and maybe Lola knows the statistics, but they bring in dump truckfuls of sand and make a plage or a beach on the river bank right there. What I like to do is hop on a, a river cruise and go up and down the length of the Seine in the, in the city and kind of pick out my zone that I want to go back to and enjoy that night. Great idea. And yeah. the river cruises are, are quite economic and they take an hour and mm -hmm. they've got an English uh, narration and it'll cost you 20 bucks or something. And then you can scout out where you want to go to hang out on the beach. Exactly. Right under Pont Neuf. That's where I would actually cap <laughs> our tours, Dad. Uh, at the end of the 21-day extravaganza, there was nothing better than to take an evening sunset cruise on the River Seine that leaves from Pont Neuf and costs just about eight, nine euros. That's the riverboat tour that leaves from the Ile de la Cité, mm -hmm, exactly. uh, right next to the, the new bridge, the Pont Neuf. Other boats leave from around the Eiffel Tower, but I do like the boats that leave right from the island, at mm -hmm. the tip of the island. It's so funny because you'll see pockets as you go up and down. You'll see, of course, the cool kids, the hipsters. Uh, you'll see the more elegant boats passing by. Then as further you get down towards the Bastille district, you'll see, okay, there's a Latin quarter where you, you hear some salsa and some tango maybe. Um, and, you know, it's just fun to see all of Paris passing by you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Paris after dark. And our guides are Andy Steves and Lola Altman, two guides who have spent a lot of time having a lot of fun after the sun goes down. So during the day or after dark, the beach of Paris is a lot of fun for locals and tourists alike. I, I mean, I just remember there's trampolines, there's uh, lounge chairs, there's... Uh, Everything uh, you can imagine. Palm trees in on boxes. There's Mr. Experiences, you know, because it's in the heat of the day, all the mist is coming down, so it's really nice. You also see, uh, you know, enotecas or wine bars and, you know, craft breweries that move in in these shipping containers. It's a happening... If you're and looking you for a great value for a club or a mm -hmm. bar... 
on the river. Mm-hmm. Check it, it out. It's an open-air party. Lola, Andy mentioned uh, jazz clubs on the river. What is the jazz club scene in general? Because I think a lot of people are thinking jazz when they go to Paris. Well, most of the jazz is happening in Saint-Michel, so not far from the from the Paris Plage. Okay, um, that's near the Latin Quarter? Absolutely. It's right. close to Notre-Dame. Yes. And if you go further up. And you have all the little caves where you can go and listen to jazz. And I think the most famous, Le Caveau de Huchet. De la Huchette. It is so good. And it's, it's so, all the tourists know about it. It's in every guidebook. But you go down there, and it's in this deep cave underneath these historic old buildings. And it's just dripping with atmosphere. And it's local dance enthusiasts with great jazz. And these people take their dancing seriously. And the, the jazz is like right out of the, the 50s or something. As a tourist, you feel privileged to be there. Absolutely, and you can have um, any songs you'd like to. So if you want to ask for a Frank Sinatra, the singer's going to sing it for you. (laughs) With these jazz clubs in these cellars, you might take a look to the side of the wall, and you'll see three different levels or uh, candle holders. And those those holders would hold candles that would go out if um, air was running out in these old cellars. So that was a way that during war times, people could know, is there enough oxygen to be safe in this bomb shelter? You sound like a tour guide. I imagine that. <laughs> There's so much to know. You're, you're dancing surrounded by history. I love it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Paris after dark. And we're joined by Lola Altman and Andy Steves. Lola, in the evening in Paris, uh, a lot of times you've gone to the big museum and you just kind of you just want to relax and for me it's very easy to go to the cinema and a beautiful thing in Paris is to get the little uh, regular it's every two weeks I think magazine uh, Periscope and it costs less than a dollar and you can read that even if it's in French you can understand what's playing tonight Paris has the most wonderful cinema culture and these little theaters are tiny theaters they're just 50 seats or something and you've got a hundred movies playing every night around town the key for the tourist is to remember VF means version French and VO means version original. And if it's a, an American or an English language film, it'll be playing in English with French with French subtitles. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So any tourist can go to their selection of dozens and dozens of different movies in English in beautiful little theaters if they just know when and where and they pick up the periscope from the newsstand. But if you elevate it a little bit more, you could actually go to the theater. Yes, so just about the cinema, also in the Latin Quarter, you have two little cinemas um, next to La Sorbonne where you can watch old movies. So they do like retrospective about all the movies of Hitchcock or each time it's a different director and it's always usually American movies. And that's a short walk from the Latin Quarter, so most of us tourists will be around there. You could just walk right up to the Sorbonne Yes. where you went to school. Yes, and it's just in a little street right next to the Sorbonne. And see historic movies. And if you want to see live theater, a a play, my frustration is I I only speak English. Uh, What are the options that we have if we want to see theater in Paris, but we speak only English? So nowadays we have subtitled theater in English. So it's French so we're theater. talking not movies. This is a play on stage. Yes, okay. plays and musicals that are in French and subtitled in English. And you also have plays that are on purpose in English. So you have a website that you can check. Would they, If they're on purpose in English, would they use the screens that have the translation into English from French? Would they translate it into French for people who don't speak English? Um, yes, they would. There is one play that is called Oh My God, She's Parisian, and it's all in English. 
but it's understandable for French people too. So okay. you can share a moment with French and Americans watching the same play. Is it old-fashioned to get the Periscope? Would you rather just go online, or is Periscope still a good uh, resource? Periscope is still good, but more and more people go on the on internet. Mobile. Yeah. Yes, that's good. So you'll find the information there, and the point is plenty of accessible culture in the playhouses and in the movie theaters. Yes, and for all the plays in English, if you want to make sure you get the right, there's a website, it's called Théâtre in Paris. So theatre, but with T and R. The, the English way, the British way of spelling it. The French way of spelling it. <laughs> the Fr- <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, the French way of spelling theatre. How is that? T-H-E-A-T-R-E. This is so fun talking about the City of Light after dark. Uh, I would like each of you to finish with just one little tip on how you would recommend enjoying Paris after dinner. For me, it would be hiring an Uber and giving him a list of all the famous monuments that are floodlit because Paris prides itself in lighting up its monuments. And the Uber driver goes to each monument and stops and you get out and take a picture and do a little happy jig and get back in and go to the next place. It'll cost you 50 bucks, it'll take an hour, but you get a chance to check out the beautiful floodlit monuments of Paris after dark. Andy, what would you recommend? For me, I, I don't mean to you know, beat a dead horse, but I love the Canal District, and there's a particular venue called the Comptoir General. That's the general store, but it's just one extravaganza of French Afro culture fused together, and it's in these old stables. So you go through kind of this back alleyway, if you're lucky enough to get past the bouncers, and then you get to you know enter this grand entrance with the like ethnic art on the walls. You go into the bar. It's under this big uh, wooden ship, if you can imagine, and it's just the most eclectic experience that you can, <laughs> that you can possibly have. Bringing but, African and French culture together after mm-hmm. dark. What is the name again? Comptoir General. So that's the general store. And you mentioned American jokingly English. getting past the bouncers. Is that actually an issue? One thing that I like to do is I do my best. We, As Americans, we tend to stand out. And mm-hmm. what I try to do is blend in as much as I can. That's oh. dark clothes, long pants, pointy shoes as a guy, and uh, or relatively pointy shoes. <laughs> no tennis shoes, no, no new balances getting in the door. But if you're able to wear a button-up and wear some dark-type pants, that usually will get you on the, so you know, on the short list. It's a place with some self-respect and they want to keep out trashy tourists. No shorts, no flip-flops, that sort of gotcha. thing. I just wanted to add quickly that Le Comptoir General, so it's old stables because it was taking care of the horses that were pulling the barges along the canal. There you go. So that's why it's, and it's very rare in Mm. Paris to find such a big place to party. Mm -hmm. So thanks to the old horse-drawn carriage days, we have the general store. General store. Okay. Lola, your tip. Mm, I would say one thing that if you happen to be in France on the 14th of July for Bastille Day, it would be great. In every district that night, the fireman house is open and there's a ball with a ganguette, what we call ganguette. So you can dance all night long with the fireman and there are little um, lights everywhere in the fireman place. Oh my goodness. I think that would be um, a nice, obsolete thing to do. And if you're in Paris on Bastille Day. That's 10 days after our 4th of July. You have uh, 13th and 14th. So you have to check ahead on the internet. But every neighborhood is run like its own little town. So these are arrondissements. Absolutely. And the firemen put on these parties. And I've been there. We filmed it. And it is like crazy. And it's so crowded. You can't believe it. And you don't need to worry about the fire marshal coming by because (laughs) he's in the middle of it all having a blast. (laughs) So many ways to enjoy Paris. After Dark. Andy Steves, Lola Altman, Merci bien. 
Merci beaucoup, Merci. à bientôt. Merci. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmora Hall. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Merci beaucoup to our colleagues at Radio Canada in Montreal for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Au revoir, chérie. À tout à l'heure. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find Rick's French phrasebook, plus guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence, and the Riviera. You'll find more in the travel store at ricksteves.com.